Okay, Distazapod, here we go. What week is it? It's the last week of January. We're moving into February. Uh, a couple quick things off the top. Um, I am in the process of packing up the very first action figure of the Millennial crates. And this is going to be really stellar. There's a lot of fantastic stuff in this box. I think it's a much better experience going every two months versus every month. I think it will be worth your time. Uh, there is going to be a slight lead time for folks that have purchased an annual subscription just by virtue of I don't have to wait until February 1st to uh, have their account be billed and have the transaction go through. Um, all of the annuals are packed up. Those will be going out um, maybe one to two days ahead of the people that are on a monthly cycle for the Patreon. We only have, as the recording of this, a few days until February 1st. Keep in mind, the tiers will be closed at $30 and $50 after January 31st. You will not be able to sort of change your tiers or swap around. Uh, if you've been considering an upgrade from $5 to $30, you literally have only a handful of hours left to do that. So you should do it with a plum and do it quickly so I can get you slotted for Action Figure of the Month. Uh, sorry, I'm going to keep saying it as month. Action Figure of the Millennia 2022. Um, so bear all that in mind. I think also it's going to be super crucial and important that your credit card information is up to date if you are in fact a monthly patron uh, just go and verify make sure that's all gravy because um, I do have to sort of run a report uh, probably February 2nd or 3rd after everybody's been charged I'm going to have to track down a couple people you know uh, as it always goes at the beginning of the month so make sure that information is locked in place so there's no additional delays in you getting your parcel and also if you happen to have been a January subscriber but you dropped out and you're not continuing on in February you will get one of the figures from this parcel and those will be shipped after everybody else gets their goods so just something to bear in mind you really do want both these figures to get the full effect and there are a couple little bonuses that go into these two packs for uh, those dedicated followers of ours so I'm very excited I think this is a super strong collection of figures great narrative going along with it a lot of little bells and whistles included in the box, and uh, I'm excited to get it underway and get it in your hands. So with that quick little news brief out of the way, we're going to hop into Q&As for today. we got a lot of music questions this week, which I always appreciate. It's nice to sort of get away from endlessly talking about toys, even though I could do that for the rest of my life, no problem. First up, Brent Lawson, would you do a music collaboration with any of the patrons? I know online jamming is a no, technical issues with that, but exchanging files and recording. Uh, I am open to this, and actually Kenneth West and I have exchanged some files. Um, at the time we did that, uh, for those who don't know, Kenneth West, uh, very talented musician and also really talented stop motion animator. Uh, his videos typically play when I'm streaming online uh, on Twitch. We've exchanged files. Uh, when he sent me his really nice audio track, I sort of lacked the confidence to put any vocals over it, right? This is a, a very new pursuit for me. I don't necessarily have my sea legs in every regard, so I felt very intimidated by such an immaculately uh, constructed track, whereas the tracks of music I put together are just sort of chaotic and, you know, uh, a cacophony of different sounds. Um, so I sort of, uh, you know, I, I lost the nerve to lay down any vocals with it. But I think now that uh, more time has passed and I've had more experience playing live for people, uh, I would definitely consider taking another look at that. The, the biggest uh, block to collaborating with people is my stubbornness in the programs that I use. So I record everything live in one take, uh, typically on one track, one channel recording, uh, and then I really insist on using GarageBand, which I know is, uh, you know, look, it's a robust enough program, but everybody 
who does this uh, in a bigger capacity than me or has more years making music, they all use Ableton or sort of more professional programs as opposed to GarageBand, which just kind of comes free with any uh, iPad or any uh, laptop that you have. So I have found one of the barriers to me collaborating with people and sending tracks and stuff like that is that I'm very stuck in using GarageBand. I, and look, to be completely fair, I've downloaded other programs. I have tried them out, uh, you know, at great length, especially Ableton. I put probably like 10 to 15 hours into trying to learn Ableton and and figure it out. And just for me, the intuitiveness of how Mac designs their programs, uh, even if the trade-off is some, you lose some ability to technically manipulate on a atomic level, uh, I'm okay with that because, again, this is all a very new pursuit to me, so I need kind of the pleasant user interface experience to kind of be able to do this. And, and also, you know, I've been using Mac products since I was a kid. Uh, I was the beneficiary of a brand new middle school being built the year before I entered middle school. This would have been, uh, what, 1991, 92, something like that. So brand new middle school and uh, iMacs everywhere. And so I got to have access to Photoshop and just, uh, you know, Macintosh in general. And the thing is, if you, if you learn one of those interfaces, you're kind of good for most of the other Apple products. And thusly, GarageBand has always been very comfortable for me. Uh, you know, it, it does sort of work a lot like how iMovie works or any of those sort of user interfaces. So I, I'm kind of stuck in that regard, and uh, that can be a hindrance in terms of exchanging files and things like that. So I, I'm definitely open to it. Um, but, uh, you know, with those caveats in mind. Next up from Andy Miller. Would you ever do an Uber Premium version of a few or even one of the Knights of the Slice? It seems like, on average, the standard Knight of the Slice gets one to two base plastic colors, depending on how many parts are utilized from different molds, and then up to three colors of paint are applied. Would you ever consider a Knight of the Slice with significantly more paint apps, as a number of your figures have a ton of sculpted details but are not painted in detail? I know this would raise the cost of those figures, but it would be rad, and I would happily pay more for that. Um, yeah, I mean, generally, I'm not opposed to this. Uh, I want figures to sort of, uh, you know, like, look as good as they can, given the importance of the character, if that makes sense. Like, if there are narrative reasons why a character needs a lot of paint echoes, I wouldn't be shy about spending that money and making it look the way I sort of visualize it. Um, there's another factor here, which is kind of like turn and burn, right? We blow through styles of figures very, very quickly. And uh, a figure having more deco does not mean it sticks in anybody's mind any longer than a figure that doesn't. I can give you the example of uh, John Killknife, right? Which was a Action Figure of the Month club figure from last year that had probably the most paint echoes we've ever had that was like a double paint figure and um that wasn't apparent to a lot of people because the paint was sort of applied in a way that seemed subtle and you may not have sort of noticed or pointed that out but did John Killknife hang around in anybody's mind longer than say uh Junkworth or you know, any of the material styles, I don't know. You know, I think these individual figures kind of come and go very quickly because we have a very aggressive and a very limited window in which we sort of sell these things. So, um, you know, if, if the character itself or the story I want to tell with it dictates a lot of deco, I, I'm happy to do it. Uh, but I'm not convinced because of the sort of short window these things sell in um, that it would necessarily end up, you know, being a better predictor of a sale, if that makes sense. Hopefully that's not too abstract. But very good question, very fair question, and uh, we will see what this year brings. Next up, Matt Connolly, when you do venture into society or the wild, what do you carry in your bag? 
Is it a courier bag or backpack? What does a Renaissance man carry in this age of 2022? How many Night of the Slice figures do you bring in that bag? So I venture out very infrequently, and certainly in a way in which I would have to carry anything. But let's say I'm going to Manhattan for a couple days. Um, you know, I, I, I travel with so much less than I used to pre-pandemic, and I don't know why that is. Uh, typically, I have a pocket knife on me. That's just kind of a, I don't know, uh, you know, a, something my great-grandfather taught me and, you know, holds to holds true to this day. I guess uh, let's, uh, let's say I'm, I'm planning, again, to go to the city for a few days. I would uh, have a smaller backpack. I would probably bring my OP1 uh, sort of keyboard slash synthesizer. It's kind of an all-in-one production studio in some regards. I'm going to talk a, a bit more in depth about that in a later music question. Uh, I will probably bring uh, a sketchbook, obviously. Uh, maybe my little watercolor tin. Always got to have snacks on me. Always got to have water. Uh, in every bag I have, I have these little um, sort of kits that have, you know, basic stuff, uh, band-aids, aspirin, things like that. You know, all of the sort of uh, survivor bushcraft shit that, that I'm into. I don't often bring Knights of the Slice with me unless I have a sort of specific photo goal that I'm trying to achieve in a location. I, I tend more to like to go with nothing and then buy figures that I may find in a trip that maybe I never would have bought under normal circumstances. Like I might go to a Walgreens and they have a toy section and I don't necessarily buy uh, Bandai Dragon Ball Z figures, but there's one here. And because I don't have any other toys or any other distractions, it's kind of nice to pick up something like that and just um, appreciate it in a vacuum outside of all the, you know, collectibles that I would gravitate towards that I have at home. So sometimes I find that to be an interesting way to kind of discover uh, toy lines that I'm not into or, you know, hopefully learn at least one thing about how these are produced or, you know, the, the technical aspects behind uh, creating a, a toy line that normally I would just kind of overlook. Next up, Michael Coppola, have you picked up any of the Valiverse action figures? If so, what are your thoughts? Uh, this is a good question, and I have, and I've sort of not wanted to sort of delve into it, right? Because it is a bit of a messy uh, situation. For those who don't know, uh, Bobby Vala was a former Hasbro guy who did his own campaign for Action Force figures, utilizing the name from the sort of classic UK version of G.I. Joe. Um, I believe the rights were just sort of available. So, uh, um, what people may know him better for is a sort of podcast interview where he was shit-talking Brian Flynn from Super 7 and calling him out and accusing him of fraud and all this other stuff. And, uh, to me... That's a non-starter, right? Because I'm biased here, because Brian Flynn has been an incredibly generous guy to me. And he has helped me uh, as a friend and as a mentor at some pretty critical moments in my career as a toy designer. He's really, you know, um, just just been so uh, benevolent and really helpful in some very crucial sort of areas that helped me get my business to a, you know, a new level. So I'm never going to see Brian Flynn objectively, and, and therefore I'm never going to take somebody's criticism of him lightly. Uh, it would be like somebody talking shit about a family member or somebody talking shit about Matt Doughty. I'm, you know, not going to really allow that to pass. But uh, it seemed to me that if I were to sort of uh, call out Bob, Bobby Valla for calling out Brian Flynn, I would just kind of be stepping into the mud in the same way he was. And so ultimately I chose not to sort of speak on it and just, uh, you know, not engage in that regard. Uh, 
All this occurred sort of after I had pre-ordered a single figure from his campaign. Uh, I was not interested in the sort of uh, the campaign he put together. It, it just didn't speak to me. It was more military stuff. Um, I do think the Swarm character, to give credit where credit is due, is interesting and it's it stands head and shoulders above the other figures he's designed. But to me, the the property just read as kind of an a aggro, jingoistic sort of, uh, you know, pro-military line. And we've seen plenty of those. And there is G.I. Joe classified for those who sort of want to scratch that itch. So I didn't dive very big into it. Uh, I decided to back one figure so I could kind of check it out and assess it. And then, of course, this big uh, drummed-up drama uh, by Bobby happened. And ultimately, I decided not to cancel my order with him, just to kind of let it play out, and hopefully that stuff died down. And just to be clear, I understand why he did what he did. This is a very old tactic. You know, I, I think he's stated that he's a big fan of wrestling, and this is kind of a kayfabe thing where you, you know, you call out the old guard and try to bring your status up by denigrating them. But that's not how I conduct my business. And I think he picked a very poor target. Well, Brian Flynn is definitely a lightning rod for people's criticism online. Uh, I know him personally, and I know him to be of the highest caliber of character as a human being. He's a very, very nice, very warm guy. And uh, I believe he is, you know, he conducts himself uh, with high morality. So all that aside, what did I think of the figure? Uh... You know, it's decent. It is reasonably well-made. The paint apps seem to be very thoughtful. Uh, the big problem I found myself having with the line, and this is stepping outside of all of the external drama and all the things like that, uh, the proposition of this line is not any better than what you would get in G.I. Joe Classified for a fraction of the cost. In a lot of the sort of marketing and the, you know, facing and the video for the Action Force line, this was supposed to be his version of G.I. Joe, and it was going to be so much bigger and better for so many different reasons. And at the end of the day, fundamentally, you just have the same figure. It is a hyper-articulated six-inch figure with futuristic weaponry or, you know, quasi-futuristic weaponry. And uh, they kind of articulate and move in the same way G.I. Joe Classifieds does. Same kind of concept, right? To me, fundamentally, there's no difference. There's no spin. There's no one-upmanship. You're just kind of serving up exactly the same thing that people have to pay more for. I think also, given the history of the Action Force line, specifically in the UK, and my affinity for it, I don't see the connection here, and maybe there's intentionally not supposed to be a connection, but you are still using the name that's been used before that does conjure certain memories for collectors, and, uh, you know, to me, it just falls flat in that regard. Now, by comparison, you look at the Robo Skull campaign, of which I am also a backer, uh, that is sort of propping itself up on the wonderful foundation of Action Force uh, in many of the same ways, but it feels truer uh, to that original brand, right? You look at the RoboSkull and you see the heritage. You, you see how it is sort of a spiritual successor to that really fantastic Palatoy line from, you know, the uh, early 80s. And all this should sort of be understood uh, with the caveat that, you know, I'm kind of over military lines and I'm not a six-inch collector guy. So, you know, this was never going to be a line that really activated all of my synapses anyway, regardless of, you know, all the external stuff that we've mentioned. Um, but I'm happy to sort of support people that are putting it on the line. To his credit, he did deliver product, and it is 
very well done. It is well constructed. I didn't have any breakage issues. The paint seemed neat. So, you know, there is credit to be to be doled out for sure. But I think that the the bigger drama of the entire thing, uh, you know, that just didn't help uh, the it didn't help drum up any sympathy or any enthusiasm on my part. But everybody's mileage may vary. If you are a six-inch collector and you do like military things, uh, you know, I think you probably have a good time with this line. But for me, it's just, uh, it's too much baggage there, and it's not the scale I collect. And, you know, uh, again, I'm trying to tell sort of stories that are in some ways running counter to the narrative I grew up with in the 80s, which is that you know, military might makes right, and the U.S. as a superpower is good for the entire world. So I'm sort of trying to tell the inverse of that story in a lot of regards. And uh, so naturally, you know, things in that mode are, are probably not going to appeal to me. I do think there's a bigger lesson here, though. And this applies to a lot of my audience because a lot of you guys are aspiring toy makers. And some of you have taken lots of steps and leaps towards that. You know, we just had uh, the Mark Ultra. He just shipped his first product made in China. That's really great. You know, he started off as a resin toy maker. I know there's others of you amongst the ranks that are in various stages of getting to that ultimate goal. So the bigger lesson is that unfortunately at this day and age, for independent toy making or independent artistry, really, you are your brand in some respects. And the conduct you have and the way you interact in the space is reflective of the product you're selling, for better or for worse. So, you know, uh, <laughs> in, in a lot of respects, people are buying a part of me when they buy a Night of the Slice figure. So I choose to conduct myself in a certain way in marketing videos and in my public facing and in my podcast. Um, and I think that uh, that is a calculation you have to make in this day and age. If you want to be aggressive and you want to call out other toy makers and you want to drum up drama, that might work for some people and it might not work for others. You know, it's all got to be a calculation. But for the sort of aspiring toy makers listening to this, I would take all of this into consideration. Take what you post on Twitter into consideration. You know, if you're a horny guy on Twitter who's uh, just out there being horny on your main account, that is going to come into the equation at some point when you start sort of selling things. It's all out there in the public record. Are you that type of person that sort of picks fights on message boards or you know, gets into it with people in the comments. If one day you start selling, all that is going to be a lens in which people view you through. So, you know, the, these things are not without consequence. And it is something, if you want to be a creative independent at some point, uh, it's really, it pays to be thoughtful about these things. Next up, we got our buddy Lance Tomimoto with a similar question from last week, but a slightly different spin on it. Will I back the new Ramen Toys 80 Commanders and Quicksilver? Previously, I believe you asked about the sort of villains from the 80s Commander line, quote-unquote. Um, so since Lance asked this question last, I have seen the redux of the 80s Commanders with the sort of brighter colors, the adjusted heads, and I believe there's some tweaking to the accessories. Um, I'm kind of thinking about it. I, I'm, I'm actually contemplating picking this up. Oh, I think also the helmets are slip-ons now. They're not sort of two pieces. Um, you know, they look damn good. I, I have to be honest. So I, I just might be dipping into that. I think it's interesting. Uh, Quicksilver, it's still a pass for me. They've shown photos. They've shown the paint deco. Um, 
I'm sort of less interested in that. Uh, I'm not... Like, conceptually, I really like Silverhawks, but I wouldn't say I'm, like, a huge fanatic for them, right? And I'm not sort of aching for a relaunch. I, I do think, strategically, there's a very, a very uh, big issue with Super 7 not showing updated photos of Silverhawks Series 1, right? There is definitely... Uh, there's a lot of question marks, and, and to their credit, they did state that they are working on a new type of paint, a sort of autom auto almost like an automotive paint that will have a color sheen to it. But I think it's it's probably strategically a really bad step to have ramen toys go out and show their paint sample of a actual silver silver hawk, and then not have a kind of you know update. Uh, push for what Super 7's core lines will look like. And for those who don't know, I had this in, you know, verified by Brian Flynn, the Ramen Toys Quicksilver is fully licensed from uh, the owners of Silverhawk, so it is not a, uh, a sort of bootleg or something like that. So uh, to answer the question better, I'm a maybe leaning towards yes on the new Ramen Toys recolors. And I'm probably a no on Quicksilver. But, you know, if Ramen Toys did other characters from Silverhawks, I might bite. Next up is the birthday boy, Daniel Hartzler. My question was inspired by Lanes from episode number 275. Is the Rift Killer shell that had it shucks off before taking up residence in the vending machine the same one discovered and worn by Greg Gannon? This is a fantastic question. I had actually not thought about this until now, but... Let's say this much. Um, the Rift Killer shell that Hadith is wearing prior to getting inside of the Cola machine is the the sort of uh, Rift Cola figure from, I believe, Toy Pizza Con. Jeez, what year was that? I don't know. One of our online Toy Pizza Cons. So... Uh, that, just to establish, that was what became Hadith, of course. So I think we could say that there was a Rift armor in gray hanging around Subcity, and that the Cola Knight sort of saw it and made an impression, not unlike the T-1000, uh, of that armor, and that was why he had that look then. So I don't know so much that there was a physical Rift Cola armor other than it being a sort of impression of an armor because obviously he could kind of change shapes and things like that and and would just simply kind of change his shape to go into the soda machine to uh, get into subsidy or to hide from being captured. Next up, Sean Denny. First off, I hope that Stu comment was a reference to Carl Weathers in Arrested Development. Yes, of course it was. One of the great all-time shows. Second, if you could design a Night of the Slice playset based on any specific Night of the Slice location slash scene, what would you choose? I.e. General Beowulf's Ice Fortress playset or something like that. Um, I think I would do kind of like a subsidy moon bay, if that's what they call it. Moon pool. Um, these the sort of, uh, these are like wet docks where people can kind of enter and exit from a submersible uh, habitat and things like that. Moon Pool, I believe it's called. Um, so I would do something like that. And I actually built a, just kind of a diorama many years ago. I think it was when we were first doing the Subcity Desert Rat. You might be able to go back on my Instagram and see a photo of it, but it was a light up playset with a simulated sort of water pool in the middle. And, uh, I just think stuff like that, you know, like something you would see in the abyss. Um, that's really cool to me and would probably be the type of playset I would want to do. But full disclaimer, I'm never doing playsets. Moving along, Gabe Tovar, good soup recommendations. Well, Gabe, as we have talked at great length, I am dairy-free and gluten-free, so that cuts out a lot of very tasty, very good soups. However, we are constantly making soups in this house. And, and while I would hesitate to give you recommendations on a specific soup, everybody's gonna be different, their soup needs uh, cannot possibly be fathomed by anyone who's not them. I would recommend 
an instant pot because you can make almost anything into soup utilizing it. So we're a big instant pot house, very versatile device. You can even cook rice in there. Um, gun to my head, you know, I like more, I, I'm going to go with more of a stew than a soup. Like I like chunks of meat in my liquid meals. And we, uh, we're always cooking up some kind of stew, some kind of soup. And uh, I don't feel like I have to explain myself to you. I mean, a man's soup and stew choices are between him and God and no one else. And actually, I don't like this line of questioning now. I, I now find this to be a very aggressive question. And uh, I don't want to bring lawyers into this equation, but um, I'm not going to be divulging my favorite soup. Next up, Quentin Russo, bloodied Cro-Mega would be awesome. Thoughts? Um, so I did a lot of blood-splattered figures when we did Mortal Kombat at Jazzwares. Uh, and in that case, I was actually doing the Paint Masters myself and then sending them to China and having them duplicated. Um, I sort of feel pretty lukewarm on the idea, honestly, and mostly because... It's a very easy custom for anyone to do if they feel like they want to see blood splattered on a Chromega figure. It's incredibly easy. Just get some red paint uh, and just flick with your finger the tip of the brush and voila, you are good. Just let it dry. Uh, so, I, you know, I don't think it's... Uh, it's not that I'm sort of squeamish about depicting blood in toys or things like that. I just think it's... It's not necessarily a value add when it's something that people can kind of do at home should they choose to sort of want that look for a character. So, fair question. Um, don't have this, the strongest urge to do that. Next up, another Chromega related question from Isaac Carmen. I have a vision of a large Brienne of Tarth style gal counterpart to Forest Crow. Any chance of something like that, even a head variant, would be nice. Um, so I have long contemplated a sort of Amazonian figure and to the point where I have a lot of different drawings and different takes on a sort of muscular female base body for Knights of the Slice. Uh, I've never felt sort of strong enough with the design idea to move to actual sculpting. But it has been something, it's been a multi-year project of that idea kind of rolling around in my head. Um, part of the issue is the hips, right? It is, there has not been a good solution to female hips in toy making for several reasons. There is a sort of, uh, you know, there's a general shape difference to uh, genetically female body types versus male body types. And when we're kind of simplifying that into a small scale and then articulating it, something always gets lost. And I experimented with a sort of V-style crotch with Radic because I wanted him to be able to do high kicks and things like that. But we know what the limitations to posing are with that choice. And there's also compatibility uh, issues. You can't utilize Radic's legs on everybody without also utilizing the pelvis. So I'm sort of stuck in this mode where I really want to figure out a way to have a more naturalistic articulation ability to a female 118th scale figure, but I don't know what that formula is yet. And it's going to take more sort of pondering and staring at my orb and, you know, sketching to, to kind of figure it out. So um, the good news is if you want to create an Amazonian warrior for yourself, just take a Chromega body. We have a couple different female heads at this point and, you know, you can make it happen for yourself. I don't know yet how I'm going to tackle this idea of an Amazonian woman, but it is sort of high on my interest list. So hopefully it's something I figure out before I, I die. Next up, the question I've been waiting for, for anybody to ask me wanted to talk at great length about this for so very long. Thomas Jonte, 
I'm looking at a new keyboard. Can you give us an updated breakdown of all your music gear? There have been some leaps and bounds in terms of upgrades. A video tour, perhaps. So I will do this. I, I will shoot a little short video on uh, the current setup, which I do think is ideal. Many people have commented that the audio has been sounding pretty fantastic on live streams lately. I do think I am, I've sort of carved out a collection of instruments that really work for me and help me generate the sounds that I, I sort of want to. So I'll do that and I'll put that on patreon.com slash jessiedastasio for patrons to look at. But uh, to speak to it, you know, I'm, I am two and a half years into this project of learning how to play music. This was sort of like when the pandemic kicked off, I decided to go down this rabbit hole. And initially the idea was I just wanted a little musical interlude in between karaoke songs because I didn't have a YouTube premium account. So there was, there would be ads playing in between songs I wanted to sing. So I needed just a little kind of melody or something in between those song breaks. And so I got a MIDI keyboard and used GarageBand at first. And then it just, you know, being locked inside with a pandemic, it tended to snowball. And I started buying all these different instruments. And I think I went through an important process because I didn't know what I was looking for. And I didn't know how to manipulate sound. I didn't know how to play any notes or what chords were or anything like that. Still don't really. But I think through trial and error, I figured out what the right instruments are for anybody like anybody wanting to start this or tinker around with this I know what the formula is at least I know what what worked for me as a complete amateur so what I would say generally is you need something to produce sound and you absolutely absolutely need something to manipulate sound and these are often two different devices so think of it as you know the item you are strumming and then the manipulator to that, the device that is going to let you make that sound uh, basically go insane. So what, what I've decided is that Korg brand instruments are the, the best for me. So I would highly recommend people start with a micro Korg, which is a synthesizer. It's a smaller one. It's arguably portable, but it's not entirely portable. But it's not a full-size keyboard, so it doesn't take up a ton of room. But the MicroKorg really can do almost everything you need. And it also has a vocoder, so you can, it comes with a little microphone. You can sing into it and sound like a robot from Daft Punk. Uh, it's very, very satisfying. So I would say a MicroKorg is, is probably the heart of my operation down there. And... Every other Korg device I've bought, I've been extremely happy with. Now, I've I've bought, you know, Yamaha and Casio and even, like, really budget dollar store synthesizers. Uh, I've experimented with inexpensive ones and expensive ones, and I keep coming back to my Korg family and the, the extreme sort of pleasure and excitement I get out of them. So, Micro Korg is... The centerpiece, right? That is your, that's your keys, um, and it will serve you well. You can lose yourself in that for a few years and, and never get tired of it. My microcorg runs through uh, two other Korg items, and that is the Chaosolator and the Chaos Pad. And I have both big, full-size, robust versions of these, and I also have very small, handheld, portable versions of these. When you see me tapping with my fingers on a device that lights up, this is the chaos family of the Korg items. And there's no coincidence that I love it so much and it happens to be named Chaos. And it really does sort of, you know, fit in my philosophy of music making and also character creation and toy design and things like that. So the Chaosolator is essentially a synthesizer, but it's touch sensitive. So you have a little pad and you basically, you tap out the noises and the sounds and the drums and whatever you want. And for me, not understanding chords or how to read music or play music or what a note is, this is extremely satisfying because you can, can, you can construct songs and you can do so without any 
technical know-how whatsoever. And if you've watched any of the live streams in the past week or two, these have almost all been just on these Chaos devices. Uh, both the Chaosolator, the sort of handheld one, and the Chaosolator Pro, they have a looping feature. So that means they can record either 8 or 16 bars, which gives you a little melody that will repeat itself over and over again. And that was really a game changer for me. I, I got into the Chaos family very late in my music making, and I sort of wish I had started with the MicroKorg and then the Chaos Pads and avoided all the other expensive devices I bought that I ultimately didn't like and ended up mothballing. So we got the MicroKorg, that's the centerpiece. It runs through the Chaosolator, and that I use to supplement my sort of Think of the, the microcorg as the lead guitar. The chaos, the chaosolator is going to be every other instrument. So I'm gonna lay down my drums, I'm gonna lay down my bass line, have a little effects, uh, maybe have some sort of, you know, a, a cresting wave sort of sound like something Vangelis would do. And the, the sort of rhythm instruments, those can be on a simple loop because those are not front and center, right? I don't need to, to change those notes too frequently. Those can kind of be going in the background as they are. Now, the third item that is probably the most crucial one is the Chaos Pad. And the pad is different from the Chaosolator in that the pad does not generate its own sounds, but it manipulates the sounds of every other instrument. So, uh there's a really great panning effect. And you've heard it on many songs, but essentially like the music will get quiet. It'll sound very muffled and it will roll around the spatial plane that you're listening to. You'll hear it in your right ear and then it comes all the way around into your left ear. Uh, Journey, More Than a Feeling, I think was probably one of the, the biggest commercial songs to kind of utilize that, right? And the Chaos Pad does that and it does it with a hundred other effects. So I can play a couple notes on the microcorg. That runs through the chaosolator, which is going to give me my drums and my bass. And then those three sounds are going to run through the chaos pad, and I can manipulate all three of those with another touch of my finger. And I can add echo to it. I can add a flange to it. I can do whatever I like. So those three things like are really robust and will give you almost every kind of sound you can imagine. And plus you have mic inputs that you can have on either your microcorg or you can run into your chaos pad, uh, chaos letter, sorry, and chaos pad actually, you can have mic inputs on both. So that's really like everything you need if you have the space to kind of set up, uh, you know, a little studio. I think those instruments, you're good to go. Now. There's a bigger concern here. There's a bigger question. What if you're on the go? What if you're on the move? You're not gonna lug all that equipment around. Even though that stuff is relatively compact versus um, you know, a lot of the gear that's traditionally been made, you really don't wanna be unplugging that shit and dragging it everywhere. So I now have a mobile setup that is almost exactly those three items. Which brings me to the aforementioned OP1. Now the OP1 is not in the Korg family. This is by uh, Teenage Engineer, who are a Swedish company. And uh, they have basically designed an all-in-one mobile studio, uh, digital audio workstation. It's, it's pretty much an all-in-one tool. And you can do pretty much everything on it. It is a very robust device but it is not an intuitive device. It is obscure. It, it sort of rewards you for exploration, but that's not how my mind works. So the OP-1 is really relegated to running my, my audio samples. When you hear like a female voice during a live stream, that's coming from the OP-1. And I really almost exclusively use it for that unless I'm traveling, in which that becomes my main sort of synthesizer and uh, unit for generating sounds. Now I run the OP-1 through, you guessed it, a 
K-Oscillator, not the Pro model, the sort of handheld one, and also the Chaos Pad. And I'll show you guys some videos or some photos of the sort of studio versions of these devices and then the portable ones. But I can achieve quite a bit. And in fact, using just the standard K-Oscillator Pad and the OP-1, Matt Dowdy and I wrote that song Double Beef Cornucopia. We just banged that out in one sitting on his dining room table, me on the K-Oscillator and him on the OP-1, and it was just that simple, baby. Now, one final note. Uh, so, you know, I've given you sort of a, if you have the studio room, get these. If you need a more portable setup, get these. Uh, one additional instrument I have, which you guys have seen on, on the streams, is the big long keyboard, the full-size one, and that is the Korg Wave Station. And it was a complete coincidence. I just happened to walk into a fudge store in town, and the owner was a, like, retired musician, and he, in the back of the store, he was sort of selling some guitars and albums, and I saw that puppy just sitting up against the wall. Pure coincidence, I happened to sort of have Korg instruments. I recognized the logo, and he sold it to me for a great price. The Wave Station is a really, really fantastic device, and I've talked at great length about it before. It, it was used in the early 90s in almost every band that used keyboards. You know, a lot of Depeche Mode songs utilize it. Um, X-Files score was composed on it. A lot of commercials and cop shows utilized it. Really, really fantastic device really sounds like the early 90s in, in a way that I can't even describe. So if you have additional space and you want something that's really robust, a Korg Wave Station absolutely is going to be great. Also, I have have not played, but I, I know by reputation the M1 is also a really fantastic device. And these do feature card slots as, as kind of primitive of a you know, technological device this was, you can expand it quite a bit utilizing the card slots. So that, that's sort of an added bonus. So hopefully this information is useful to you. Apologies for making everyone suffer through this uh, very nerdy technical talk about what instruments I like to use. Uh, but, you know, this is exciting stuff. It's fun for me. And uh, I wish you well on your journey through music. Okay, folks, here we go. This is the final round of questions for this week. We got some good ones. But before I complete this episode, just want to warn people who pay attention, we are running low on Lintz Run Bro. And that rhymes, so that's a nice poem. Lintz is probably one of my favorite army builder figures. It has a great and varied swath of different uses for different builds. And uh, I think we're down to the last 10 or so. And uh, once he's gone, that's it. He's gone. So if uh, that is a figure you might be thinking about for the future, the future is coming very quickly. So go pick him up. Let's sell him out. That would be really fantastic. Now on to the final questions. We're going to go with Jim first. Way off topic, you mentioned a Toto, which is a Japanese futuristic toilet, in a previous Dostazapod. Those are crazy expensive. Have you considered just a seat attachment? We installed a couple following a trip to Japan, and for 300 bucks, they seriously, they are seriously one of the greatest quality of life improvements you can make. Uh, I agree with you 100%. I actually have a sort of, uh, exactly what you're describing, one of those hookups for a toilet that doesn't require a brand new toilet. I also have the Squatty Potty, proud to say that, but... The Toto is the end goal here. I want all of these things. Um, you know, the the state of hygiene for people's assholes in America is uh, a global disgrace. Let's be honest. We need to step up our game here. So, Toto is still the goal. Eventually, I would love to see Totos in every bathroom in this house. There are 16 bathrooms and 17 different wings, uh, 47 uh, guest bedrooms, a smoking den, 
Um, all of this protected by magnetic mines and tripwires. Next up, Eric Valverde, are we going to get a heart drop for Valentine's Day? Uh, you know, I had not even thought of this until I read your question. And I will be even more honest with you. I did not plan the heart drop for last year. I just happened to have two pink figures and the narrative kind of came together a few days before the drop. So it wasn't actually thought out. It was not premeditated. I do think that was one of our more fun drops. Uh, I can still sort of remember the song that went, went along with it. But no, I did not make any plans or sort of order anything pink accordingly. So I don't think we'll have a thematic Valentine's Day drop this year, unfortunately. Final question from Philip Barrara. What was the toy made held in hand where you finally said to yourself, I am a toy maker? My case was the resin Sonic the Hedgehog figure. It is the toy in which I would go back in time and give to my eight-year-old self and tell him, you will be able to make this someday. Um, you know, I don't know. I can only sort of experience that retrospectively, like looking back, right? I, I, I don't know that I ever had a moment where I felt that way because, you know, the gears were moving so quickly in so many ways. Like, I guess the Rex Gannon figure I did with Plan B Toys would be my first manufactured toy that was made overseas by a professional company. But there was so much going on at the time. I was struggling to pay the bills. Um, I was curating this great big art show with artists from all over the globe in it. And... Uh, trying to sort of get by living off of my art. So there was such a enormous struggle at the time, I never stopped to sort of like enjoy that milestone at all. Um, I think in some respects, the uh, Jazzwares Mega Man Retro Roto line was the first time like I felt proud of the product I had put out and it was the product I wanted to have made. You know, I made a lot of product before then where there was a ton of concessions, including, honestly, the Rex Gannon, you know, Plan B figure. There are concessions in that figure because I didn't know what I was doing and I wasn't the person manufacturing it. But when it came to Retro Roto, I, at that point, had been to China, I'd been to Hong Kong, I sort of, you know, was starting to get my legs underneath me and uh, I had free creative reign so long as Capcom approved everything. So I, I guess looking back, that was more the moment where uh, what I had in mind, I was able to execute. So um, I think I would, I would pick that moment. But really great question. These were all great questions. Um, let's see, what else? Well, I'm doing a deep dive into the blockchain and crypto and NFTs. And that doesn't mean I'm going to start flipping and selling NFTs, but it does mean I'm trying to educate myself more about this. I've had some very high-level conversations recently with people that, uh, you know, are very knowledgeable in these fields. And the problem is with this subject is there's a lot of white noise out there. And I've absolutely, uh, you know, bought into the anti-blockchain mania, and I'm trying to sort of better educate myself about what is the reality on the ground of this phenomenon. Will it be a transformative thing, or will it supercook the earth? The truth is probably somewhere in between, and I'm trying to sort of suss that out. Uh, so I think at some point we're going to have a big conversation about this, and I'm going to have a lot of really good, learned reading, or, you know, the present day equivalent of reading, which is podcasts, to share with you guys to, if you are sort of curious about this subject and would like to know more about it. Um, the reason I'm doing this is because my oven has finished preheating. That's a good sign. Um, the reason I'm doing this because I heard some a uh, sort of conversation and somebody framed something that I'd never heard before and that is that through the blockchain you can have essentially a passport an authentication token that will allow you guys to access my content wherever I am 
You know, because as I've said before, you have to be platform agnostic as a content creator. I used to have a great following on Flickr, and then that died down. I had to move to Tumblr, where I built up an audience again. Then I had to move to Instagram. Then I had to move to YouTube. Now I'm at Patreon. And the acceleration of all this means I have to move more and more frequently as these platforms sort of die or kill off the incentive for the creators. So when it was served up as the blockchain is essentially a way for you guys to access what I make and what I do regardless of the platforms in the event that these platforms continue to get worse, then my ears perked up. Because I got to tell you, I'm already seeing it. I'm already seeing the walls caving in. Uh, I have many times tried to write a post that uses the word giveaway on Patreon. Now, I don't really do giveaways in a real sense. These are not like uh, raffles where people are buying in, which is federally illegal to do on these platforms. But even so, I'm unable to post anything that has the term giveaway in it. I get flagged and it says, gives me this disclaimer about giveaways and that they're not allowed and, you know, X, Y, and Z. And then I have to rewrite the post around what they've sort of, you know, labeled as a violation of their terms of service. And that's going to continue to happen. You know, the, the ground is going to become less and less on this platform as it has for every other platform. So in anticipation for that, I'm taking the time to kind of uh, get educated and listen to people much smarter than me in this realm because I have many questions, I have many hesitations about this new technology. But I want to see if there's a, pla a practical application that would allow my link to you guys to be sort of anti-fragile and able to exist outside of the current slate of avenues we already have. Because I do think true independence is going to be that. It's going to be getting away from Instagram, getting away from YouTube, getting away from Patreon, and just us directly being able to correspond and interact. So for those worried about this, this doesn't change anything. Uh, this is just sort of my ponderings at the moment and what I'm trying to sort of become a little better educated about. So watch this space. Maybe we'll have a long conversation about it in the future. Um, you know, I, I yet am inconclusive as to if cryptocurrency is going to upend the world. I do not know the answer to that question. Uh, and I'm trying to not have preconceived notions about it. So I will uh, share more as my discovery goes on as I explore this frontier. And uh, if there is an interesting intersection for what we do here and it makes things easier or alleviates some kind of, uh, you know, complicated part of our interactions, then uh, maybe it's something to look closer at. But in any case... I bid you adieu, as we always say, that's my catchphrase, and uh, pizza out.